Hello and welcome to the Peter Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer, of course, and I have to say um, my first guest today may well end up being in my very, very narrow category of the best interview I've ever done. Um, the guy really impressed me, and I didn't know much about him. I, I knew about what he's done in the past, but didn't know Bevan Slattery from a bar of soap, apart from the fact that he was a founder of Next DC, Superloop, Piper Works, Megaport, and a whole bunch of other companies. So many successful IT or tech companies have had the name Bevan Slattery associated with it. And I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what he'd be like. I didn't even know what he'd look like. Uh, and we we did a Zoom interview, so I got to see him while I interviewed him for this podcast. And i got to say, the stuff that he revealed and uh, the kind of things um, he shared um, really made for, for me an extraordinary experience. And I've got to say, this is a guy who, you know, born in Rockhampton, who was... I would say, looked and seemed to have a very normal life, but he's ended up being abnormally successful. And I think my interview with you, with him actually reveals um, something very special about this guy. And um, I must admit, I'll be watching. And the market watches everything he does. I, I've, I've recently talked to a CEO of a company um, who luckily had um, – Bevan invested in it and instantly the share price spiked. So he's someone who's worth um, paying attention to and learning from. And then we have Justin Smith, the author of a book called Babies of the Rose. Justin is a well-known radio personality on radio stations like 3AW and 2GB um, and uh, current affairs kind of guy, you know, and uh, he's written a book which came from his experiences of hanging out with you know, former Australian members of the Australian Defence Force and uh, a young lady who had some really big challenges in uh, her life. And the end result comes this book, Babies of the Rose. Uh, I interview uh, Justin about why he wrote about it and what are the take-home messages from this book. Uh, and once again, quite surprised me how interesting this whole thing was and how it quite affected me. So that's the show for this week. Well, I'm catching up with Bevan Slattery. Now, he's the founder of Sub.co, Cloud Scene, Superloop, Megaport, NextDC, and co-founder of Pipe Networks. Bevan Slattery, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. Thanks. Thanks was, it, was there anything wrong with that intro? Are you a founder of all those businesses? Yeah, no, definitely am, definitely am. Okay. Um, how do you end up being a guy who can do that? Like if if you give us an idea of where you came from, background wise, that left you in a situation where you have this obviously an astute ability to pick companies that have potential and then develop them. Have you ever thought about that? You know, probably more in recent times. I've you know uh, I've had to think about sometimes why I do what I do. Um, and um, you know, it's a good thing sometimes when you have that excitement activity. But sometimes it's uh, you kind of wonder why you're doing five things at once as well. So you know, it's a blessing and a curse at times. But but no, it's it's a really humble beginning. Grew up in uh, 
small town, uh, Rockhampton um, in central Queensland. Um, you know, just went to you know, normal schools like everyone else. Um, you know, went to state school and state high school and uh, kind of I was pretty fortunate in the 80s and the early, early mid-80s that, you know, the, the PC kind of the, the home computer was coming along, the VIC-20 and the Commodore 64 and that kind of revolution really came, the home computing piece. So, you know, that really piqued my interest in, in computing. Um, even though I, you know, being in Rockhampton, there, were, there weren't many computer jobs apart from at the computer store. So um, I did a... Um, well, actually, I dropped out of a, a Bachelor of Business degree in accounting, which I, I managed to scoop up some 20-something years later um, mm. at, my, at my, my hometown. And then I, I worked in local government of all places. Um, there's something called a, a trainee local government clerk, um, which, yeah, so that was kind of, that was kind of my background. And, and yeah. you know, I didn't start in IT, but I, I certainly ended up there. Yeah. I guess one thing about councils is that they would have had plenty of computers compared to every other business around. Yeah, yeah, they did. And, and it was actually a really interesting time. Uh, local government was moving from cash accounting to accrual accounting. So, you know, they had to put in, you know, um, geospatial information systems to track assets and roads and everything from roads to street signs. So I got to see some of that. Mm. Um, changing of how we charge rates and how we accounted for it. So it was actually a really, really interesting time to kind of be involved in, in local government. Mm. Yeah, you've kind of revealed to us earlier, as I was listening to your first answer, I thought, I wonder if this guy ever did accounting and then you you revealed that you you've had a, a real brush with accounting because to, to develop so many businesses it's it's one thing to be entrepreneurial and visionary but a lot of visionary entrepreneurs have fallen by the wayside because they they didn't really understand you know the, their balance sheet and their their profit and loss has that been critically important to, to your success, do you think, that you actually are able to marry in your vision and what needs to be done to make a company work? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, having, having the accounting uh, background at, at uni was, was, was important. Interestingly, the first kind of company in the tech space I worked for, um, I opened up a licence of theirs. It was an internet service provider back in the kind of middle to kind of 97 thereabouts um within six weeks of starting there i knew they'd go bankrupt um mm. and that was a really sobering moment when you kind of and you know it was when they had a lot of prepaid hours you'd, you'd pay 500 dollars you get 500 hours of dial-up internet um and they were just you know they were living the high life and you know every time i saw a 500 dollar check I, I saw 500 hours of unearned revenue sitting there and uh <laughs> you know and i figured out pretty quickly that, that they were going to going to kind of tank and you know that was that was a an example of where having that background you could see the difference. But being in the listed and public markets as well, you know, I've had a few ASX companies over the years. So, you know, having that background helped me a lot, particularly as you know, as the finance side and and, and audit side of these businesses gets um, even more complex. Okay, so I, I read out a long list of companies that you've founded. <clears throat> um, uh, have we left out names that didn't work that you know you thought would work and they they're not on the list because they didn't work? Um, I don't think so. No. Okay. Um, so you're you're like the Steve Smith of business founding founding mate. Every time you play, you, you hit a century. <laughs> I believe that or the Steve Bradbury, but otherwise, so far it's <laughs> right. So no, it's it's worked out all right so far. So. Yeah, that's great. So plenty, plenty of close calls though. You know, yeah. plenty of close calls, right? So. You know, that's 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 one of the things. It's not. It's never a walk in the park. It never has been. But yeah. you know, a lot of pers perseverance, and there's been a lot of tough times to get through there. Mm. Um, have you learned a lot 
from you know watching and reading and being connected with some of the 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 great tech entrepreneurs particularly of America you know like the the jobs you know the gates and all the other silicon valley big names I don't think so. Um, terrific. It's, it's going to be great a answer, mate. So, <laughs> um, don't get me wrong. I, I, I don't. I, I've actually never really read a, a book in my life, um, <laughs> and I'm not exaggerating. I remember when I was at school, I actually did a book review and I watched a movie version of it, and the movie version of the book were fairly different. So, <laughs> and my oral presentation was was a little bit off. But um, I, I read a lot. I mean, I, I read a lot of interesting articles. Um, but to have the patience to read an entire book is is a struggle for me, um, and it, I think you know I think somewhere I've got a touch of ADHD or something somewhere along the line. So, um, and, and I think growing up, that's one of the things that I've noticed is that you know I, I've, I've not had really many kind of mentors. Um, you know, when you grow up in Australia, you know, particularly in the kind of early two thousands, coming from a regional town and you know, then moved to Brisbane. There just wasn't those people around um, uh, to kind of get that. So, look, candidly, you know, the first decade, you know, up until probably 2010, um, it was it was it was just a few of us getting together and pushing pretty hard. I've found though that my network of people, and once you get more credibility as well, you know. Um, I found I've been able to reach out to to people who are customers and partners who support you, mm-hmm. um, and it's only probably in the last three years I've been able to, um, well, even uh, part of the last decade, you know, meeting people like you. You mentioned Craig Scroggy in particular, um, you know, Ted Ted Pretty and, and people back at the next board, but um, some people who are real mentors to me, and even Pipe Networks, Roger Clark. But I haven't had that kind of opportunity to sit down with those types of founders and. Look, I haven't read haven't read their books and things, which which I know is a failing on my part. And I know it'd be better if I did read a lot of those books, um, but no, at the moment I, I really haven't done a lot of that. Yeah, okay. um, uh, sorry. No, don't apologise, mate. Because you know, I'm I'm forensically trying to work out what it is that you've got that's helped you make success, and it varies. You know, like I've, I've interviewed Richard Branson. He's very different than Jerry Harvey, and he's and Jerry Harvey's very different from uh, when, I, when I read about Steve Jobs. And you know, I, I've even interviewed um, um, the, the former CEO of um, GE, um, Jack Welch, uh, and Jack was very different to all of those guys. So yeah. there's no one formula for success in sort of building a, a great company. But I'm going to try and work out what is your strength. I'll ask you that question. What, what do you think is your strength when it comes to building successful companies? That's a uh, seeing opportunities is typically the the, the main one, um, and then figuring out how to try to turn that turn that into a business. I mean, one of the the things I keep saying to people is often to to find an opportunity in business, you first need to be in business. Um, and nearly all the businesses that I've done have have been a knock on from a a problem that I've had in a previous business, Pipe Networks, there wasn't, you know, an independent national neutral data centre provider. Jeez, I wish there really was one. So that's when I kind of created NextDC. And that NextDC, you know, we had an, an amazing presence in Brisbane and Melbourne, but we're up against it with some competitors in in Sydney about creating an ecosystem, you know, because, you know, some data centres were there for a long time. And, 
and I thought, you know, what I need to do is create some sort of fabric that interconnects data centers together and, and, and almost takes apart the, um, uh, the benefits of having some of those data centers been there for a long time. So that's when I kind of started the idea of Megaport. Um, when I built uh, PPC1, which is a submarine cable from Sydney to Guam back at Pipe Networks, you know, there was no one around that could actually sell like, uh, international capacity to connect to the internet in the US was very expensive. Mm. So I reached out to a friend at Google and said, you know, we're just talking about it. So why don't you build one? And I said, don't be so stupid to do that. But I said, if you were to build it, where would you build it and how much would it cost? And mm. that's how that started. And, you know, all these businesses are typically solving problems I've actually had in a previous business. Um, and then I kind of think, well, if I can solve that for myself, I wonder who else is kind of in the community I can help solve it for and, you know, let's see if we can work together and see if we can solve it that way. Mm. So, so historically that's how I've seen these is, is an opportunity, well, a problem I've had in the business and, and think of a solution to solve it and then if I'm going to solve it, is this a problem that other people have? And if it is, I should test it in a few people and see what they think and then I'll see if I can make a business case out of it. Yeah. So uh, when you're taking on these big ideas and, you know, and some people say, well, you know, why don't you do it yourself and uh, you then start ascertaining the cost and whether you can make it work, along the way have you dealt with people who I know a great Business speaker on the Australian speaking uh, business speaking circuit, Tom O'Toole says, "There's a lot of dream takers out there that always tell you it can't be done." Have you encountered a lot of dream takers in your life, and have you proved them wrong? All the time, <laughs> absolutely all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, when I started, when we started Pipe with with Steve Maxter back in the day, um, we we we. we we kind of fell into the main business that became Pipe Networks. Pipe Networks was started as what we call an internet exchange where, where internet service providers can exchange data and avoid paying, you know, if, if, if Primus was sending it to, um, let's say, coming like Web Central, instead of sending it via Telstra and getting double charged, send it between each other or at least via our exchange and save a lot of money. Kind of like a PABX or a phone system in the old days, instead of dialing zero to get a line out, you can make an internal call. So, so it started as that, but then we needed some fibre to connect two of the locations together. And one of the carriers, I said, well, I want to buy some what we call dark fibre, which is unlit fibre. We can light it at whatever speed we want. And um, they said, well, we don't do that. And I said, oh, come on. And they said, okay, here's the price to do it. And I said, look, for that amount of money, I can go and get a carrier licence and build it myself. Um, and I literally said, well, I don't think you can. If you think you can, why don't you do it? Um, so sure enough, you know, we, we had a carrier license two months later, three months later, and we, we rolled out our first bit of fibre that became, you know, the whole backbone of pipe networks, which is which is huge. Um, submarine cable building to Guam, you know, you can't do that. And you know, I, I, I you know, I've I even had people betting money, and, and I had people so arrogant that they they literally told someone, you know, that they bet five dollars that I'd go bankrupt in building it in front of my face back in the day. Um, you know, so yeah, there's there's plenty of those people there, and you know, it's just more fuel for the fire. I think. Mm. Oops, sorry, I'm being I'm being environmentally conscious here. There we go. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Yeah, it's funny as you talk about that. It's it's probably the thoughts that I had when I heard that Mike Cannon Brooks was going to develop a, a a sun farm in Northern Territory and put a cable between Darwin and Singapore, and um, you know, he thinks he can do it, and probably he can. Yeah, look, that's an interesting one. Look, I mean, I've got some views on that, obviously building submarine cables. But I'll tell you one thing I'm not going to do. I'm not going to say you can't do it. You know, that's, uh, you know, that's 
that's uh, you know he certainly have the resources and you know I'm sure he's got enough smart people around him. It's a challenge. I've got to say that is that yeah. is incredibly challenging. It, it seemed huge what I heard at the time, yeah. but I thought, well, yeah, he's probably done some homework on it. Um, <laughs> so, Absolutely. So let's talk about um, Next DC because that's the company that a lot of investors really know. Um, and it's it's been a a, you know, a a great performing company. I know I've on my TV show I've often watched it. It goes up for a while. It's very exciting. It kind of balances out for a while and goes up again. And I've kind of always figured that was the, the periods when it's just sort of going sideways. I know you don't have to answer the share price um, movements, but I always figured that's probably when you're investing more into your capital to have more capacity because capacity is really important for you as the economy embraces the cloud. Is that a fair analysis of what goes on at Next DC? Well, yeah, and certainly in data centres, um, in the more modern era where we call these these hyperscalers, which is your cloud providers, uh, you know, Google, Amazon, Microsoft uh, in particular, um, you'll kind of fill up a facility and then, you know, it takes, you know, 18 months to build another one. Um, and, and when you're kind of doing that, you've also got to balance up some of your custom contracts and things like that. Um, so, you know, most of the data center operators will see that kind of happen. And then the market will also, uh, when you announce a number of new facilities and you announce a number of customers, the market kind of always, um, you know, they get excited about it and they kind of, they, they give you that forward investment once you've won those customers. And then they, they want to see you kind of, you know, fill it up not just build it, but fill it up and then, you know, kind of go again, so to speak. Mm. And that's kind of what you see with, with all the data center operators. Um, you know, they'll, they'll have a, a typically a period of, of growth where they've had good wins and good success. They've rolled out. They spent a lot of money, you know, rolling at those facilities. Mm. And then and then the kind of they're waiting for that utilization to tick up to what people were expecting it to be. And then once the utilization ticks up to where it is, you get the return, but then guess what? You're going to be reinvesting again as well. Mm. So it's a kind of, fairly continuous cycle. And as you see, it picks up, you build your facilities, utilization tracks, and then you go out and build again. Yeah. So so tell us, um, what's the potential for the cloud? Because you know, the, the, the bigger and the more important the cloud is to business and human beings, the, the more capacity you're going to have to, to build. So what's the, what's the capacity... You know what, what's what's the growth ahead? You know if it's if it's a hundred percent one day, what what are you up to now? Twenty five percent, thirty percent, sixty percent? Best guess. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm feeling this Bill Gates six hundred and forty kilobytes is all the memory a computer will need moment right now. Um, you know I, I think we're in the you know we're somewhere between I think ten and twenty percent. Unbelievable, um, isn't it? So, yeah, not, so it, the, it, the, it, the use of the cloud is so – I was staggered to realise in America that like they're, they're still buying CD-ROMs for, for their bookkeeping stuff. So, you know, with, with zero operating in the cloud, going over to America, they're, they're talking to an audience that might not, you know, be comfortable with the cloud. Yeah, absolutely. I think, though, I, I think we, we're kind of going through a – I think we're about to start to enter a new cycle and the new cycle is on – um, machine learning uh, AI mm-hmm. and and data lakes, you know, and, and I, they're calling them data oceans now. Um, I, I think that's where <clears throat> we're probably going to see another growth and exponential um, capacity, both in networks and in data centers um, and in storage and processing. 
uh, is is we're about we're about to enter probably what I'd call the machine learning era of the cloud. Mm. Um, it's been around for a while, but you know the, the the size of data that we're we're starting to see get created, and I'm I'm not talking about. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. So, you know, if, if nothing else happened except, and if we all took the same amount of photos today as we did five years ago, which we know is not true, um, but if assuming we did, you know, just in the increase of the megapixels of the photos that we're taking, you know, um, a photo used to be, you know, 500 kilo, kilobytes, you know, many years ago, but every photo now at, at, at good quality is, you know, three to five megabytes, right? So the 10 times the the size of image. So if you look in the last five years, you know, the, the cloud will probably need to just on photos alone increase, you know, by mm. some factor of 50%. I think though, for me, um, I think this this next level of, of, of artificial intelligence and machine learning um, being applied in business. And, and, and so what you get, um, Peter, is you get a an exponential return on, on the, the AI and machine learning processing with the greater amount of data that you input into this. Mm. So you're going to be finding people interconnecting massive data sets and trying to get as much data in those data sets so they can apply the machine learning to it so they get the, the greater result at the back mm. of it. Yeah. I think we're only entering that era now. Yeah, I, as I'm listening to you, um, I'm thinking about Ray Dalio in his book, Principles, which I know you haven't read because no. you've never read a book in your life. <laughs> I genuinely yeah. haven't. Yeah, and, and Ray Dalio is one of the world's you know, biggest hedge fund managers. And in his book, he actually said, once upon a time, he, he and his team, high-powered team, would try to take in every amount of variables that could affect the stock market and how they invested. But now he realises they can never, ever compete with a computer. So what they're doing is putting mega data into this, this computer models he's got and the end result is he's getting answers he would never have got before because the capacity to do it. Now, I'm thinking if he's talking, writing about that now, you know, within five years, probably every fund manager will be doing exactly the same thing. Therefore, the demands upon a business like yours grows exponentially as everyone picks up on this. But one of the big... Um, ob observational developments in everything that's modern is anything that starts off being big eventually gets shrunk. You know, like you know, phones and all that sort of stuff. It's, will, will there be a time when you won't need so much physical space to to do next DC? Because I, I, as I, I jump in the off the plane in Melbourne, when you can do that, and I and I get that. Um, the taxi across the the Balti Bridge, I see a big old warehouse, which is a new-looking warehouse, with Next DC written on it. And I say to people and friends, hey, inside there, that's all the stuff that's making our computers work and stuff like that. Well, well one day you won't need as much capacity or are you stuck with having to always grow the size of your Next DC factories? Well, that, that's actually a really good, really good question, Um and historically, there were some technologies that, that, that get you there. There's, there, are, there is a series of technologies on AI and machine learning that are, that are getting better. Um, you're seeing it with um, GPU processing, um, you know, people like NVIDIA. Uh, but, but there's, a, there's a, um, one of the companies I'm, I'm privately invested in, which, which may, look at, you know, may look at going to the ASICs next year, um, a company called Fibersense. And, and we... Um, you know, we, we, we basically turn a strand of telco fibre in the ground into uh, like an acoustical array where we can it, it turn into about 5,000 virtual microphones. No, not things that can hear voices, but things that 
can hear cars traveling up and down the road. The amount of data sets we kind of rip out of that is, is, is quite extraordinary. You know, um, you know, think about 10 gigabits of fiber for, so 10 gigabits per second of data that we'll pull out of that. And it'll, uh, with about four, four of these, uh, about 200 kilometers of, of visibility along the street, for example. Now, you know, some of the really interesting processing, and we do that within a, a single a single chip, effectively. Um, but then there's there's deeper analysis that we want to do over time with these really big data sets that we're going to create out of this. What was interesting, you know, it took ten racks of equipment to do that, um, probably about four years ago, mm-hmm. um, and we can now do that with GPU improvements and things within about a rack, one and a half racks. Um, there was a quantum leap that changed in, in GPU. There is a lot of uh, there is a lot of work in processor technology and and um, and you know supercomputers and things like that. But the interesting point that offsets that is the amount of data that we're capturing is is more than you know is, is equivalent to that if not if not um, outstripping it. So as as you, you're rapidly seeing the, the amount of compute and energy you can you, you're reducing and shrinking to provide the same outcome. The difference is the amount of data that you're actually ingesting um, is is probably stripping the the, the footprint benefits um, that come with it. There, there there is some some very big changes that they're looking at doing that in the next five years, mm. but we're still a way away at the moment. I remember doing a, a road show for Telstra, um, maybe five or seven years ago, and it was a time when a business like yours was. Like how old is Next DC now, would you say? 10 years. Yeah, so clearing around that time. And I thought to myself, and, and they were talking about the cloud. In fact, I, I even interviewed um, Steve Ballmer when he came to Australia about 10 no. years ago talking about the cloud. You know, he was CEO of Microsoft at the time and I interviewed him in, in, uh, to, a, to a conference um, at the then Regent Hotel. And he talked about this thing called the cloud. He said, it's, it's going to change everything. And, uh, and you know, he was pretty convincing. But it's just staggered me why Telstra allowed you to get such a – like to my way of thinking, that would have been a space where they should have been in. Am I right in saying that? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I'm, I'm not a tech head at all, but I thought, why aren't you guys doing what these this new company next DC is doing? Yeah, it's an interesting thing. And look, Megaport, which is one of – I'm chair of that company, and it's it's out there. It's mm. it started seven years ago. Um, you know, it's two point bit over two billion dollar market cap these days. Yeah. Twenty four countries, of which all the countries that you know Telstra and those guys are in. But the interesting the challenge that that a lot of technology companies do have within Telstra, and this is this is of no fault of the CEO necessarily, mm. any of those things, right? But the challenge they've got is is they 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 often come with a mentality of. Yeah, the reason one of the reasons NextDC worked so well is because it was it was independent, it was neutral. Yeah. So all, we we invited all the carriers in there, we invited all the enterprises in there, and we we thoroughly one of the enterprises to know which carriers were there, who they could buy from, who they could sell from, and those things. Now, obviously, within an organisation, whether it's Telstra or Optus or TPG or whoever it might be, you know, when they own these facilities, um, they they had a real allergic reaction to. An enterprise customer, and they're potentially buying from another carrier, and, and so really, what it and, and that had happened a lot in the early two thousands, and and enterprises became a lot more intelligent. So, 
so where, where they said, you know, we don't want to be in what we call a carrier jail, effectively, where mm. our equipment's kind of stuck in the whole Hotel California situation. We want to be in a, a, a place that encourages an ecosystem and people to interconnect to multiple providers. So, mm. it, so that was one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why, not just Telstra or any kind of incumbent carrier, I don't think there, there isn't a single incumbent carrier in the world that actually took on cloud interconnection, sorry, took on hosting of the cloud and data centres and actually succeeded. Mm. And it's because the whole organisation is not is not there to assist enterprises connect to other people. Mm. So that's one of those things. And same with, with in Megaport land. You know, Megaport started seven years ago. We're in all these countries. We're in all the markets that every other incumbent around the world is, is, is almost in. But, you know, what we did is that we, 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 we did that in a independent fashion everywhere you know we encourage all the carriers all the enterprises to interconnect to cloud and we saw that that opportunity and and because we are neutral and independent we're able to kind of we're able to win that market space mm. um, and that's where we are today and i think we do more we do more interconnection to cloud at megaport i think than than any I think oh, I'm pretty sure that any carrier in the world does. Okay, talk to us about Megaport because you know, a lot of experts on my investing show have liked it. Um, you know, I, and I've fallen into it. I've uh, because my experts, I, I I provide them for other investors, and occasionally they get me in as well. I'm in. So, but for people who don't understand Megaport, what do they essentially? What does it essentially do that's so unique? Yeah. So so. Its greatest value proposition is we did we did to connectivity what Amazon did to compute, okay. And so what does that mean? So what Amazon did is that they really brought the cloud to enterprises where a company can just rent compute capacity on demand, dial it up, dial it down, do it themselves without talking to anyone, you know, signing an order form, doing whatever. So. This Amazon juggernaut was happening. This cloud's coming in. Enterprise want to connect to it. The problem was is that the cloud didn't live in every data center. You know, they, all these enterprises needed to get to these what they call cloud on ramps, and they lived in very few data centers in a country. So we, we realized it's early, and we said, "Hey, let's create a platform that allows anyone in, for example, we're in about 50, 60 data centers in Australia." It doesn't matter where Amazon or what Microsoft Azure sits or Google Compute sits or Oracle Compute sits. Just get a port on the Megaport platform in whichever data center that you're in and we'll manage that connectivity to uh, to all the different cloud providers um, over that one single port. And again, you can do it in a, in a web portal using the application. You can sit there and go, I want to connect my network, my enterprise network, into my, in, my um, uh, infrastructure sitting on Amazon I want to connect it now at 5,000 megabits per second, go. And it happens within well, it happens within a minute. Um, and so what we did is we virtualized the whole connectivity experience from whatever data center, now there's 700 data centers or so around the world, um, into any one of the major cloud on-ramps anywhere in the world. So does that mean that you don't have to lock into a contract for a set period of time where you might not use much of it? It's basically when you want it, you can basically access it and pay for it. Completely, on demand, 100% on demand. Mm. You, can, you can do a connection for as little as a minute for as long as a year. 
Mm. Um, and you can dial it up and dial it down. You know, you're, the, you're Victoria Racing and you've got the Melbourne Cup on this week. Uh, you need a lot of compute and you go order that from Amazon and then you can order 10,000 megabits of connectivity for one week from Megaport. And then as soon as the you know spring carnival's over, you turn it straight back down again. It, yeah. It's that simple. That's a great example. So I guess businesses would do it over the Christmas shopping period. Black Friday must Black have Friday. been. Black yeah. Friday, absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. yeah, and COVID. We, we saw when, when COVID, you know, first came on uh, and, and enterprises said we've got to move out of the office, um, you know, the, the amount of traffic we saw come on the network mm-hmm. and the amount of new interconnections made uh, into different cloud uh, cloud operators was was massive in March. It was huge. Megaport's rivals, are there, are there many businesses doing what you guys are doing at this point in time? No, certainly with the with the leaders in it, there's a, there's a few people kind of you know coming up, but you know we 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 had about a three year four year head start you know of scale. Um, you know, I always say to people we started we were so far ahead. I, the analogy I would give people is like we um, it's it's kind of like when you 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 think it's going to be a great day at the surf and you're surfing out and you know the big waves are coming and uh, and you're out there all alone. You kind of think, are the waves coming? Is the big wave coming? You start. Not, not being sure, but when it does come, you know, you're there and you're set. So we were certainly out there, you know, far and early ahead of everyone and, and, and you know, which is why we've got over 2,000 clients on the platform today. Mm. What company out there would you have liked to have created? Yeah, you're, you're a creator. You, 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 so I guess the question, what company do you admire most Outside of your your own stable, well, that's a very good question. I haven't thought too deeply about that. Um, I would, it would it would probably be, you know, there's a couple of companies. I've got to say, it would probably be, probably be Amazon Web Services. Mm. I think, you know. And, and, you know, I remember, you know, I, I nearly got wiped out. Well, I had some stock and when I, my first company got bought in February 2000, of course, the dot-com crash happened a few months later. <laughs> um, so, and there was a lot of stock in that. So, you know, I got to appreciate, you know, the impact of share price can happen on your stock in, in those times. Mm. You know, and I can remember Amazon being, you know, a couple of bucks or whatever it was at the time it was incredibly, obviously incredibly cheap. Okay, I tell you exactly, uh, $100 down to $6. And <laughs> I remember Bezos saying, my business hadn't changed. I was still selling the same number of CDs and and uh, videos. He said, but the the market saw me as a, a less valuable company. Absolutely. And, and so I think I think Amazon getting into cloud, getting there. And, and there's there's been times when I've seen it. You know, I've, I've seen these companies, and, and I think I just should have invested in them. Um, you know, take it easy and sit in the beach. But I think to your point, I'm a bit of a builder, um, mm-hmm. and I am at times a bit of a. Um, um, on a dog chasing a car, um, but but also sometimes I'm I'm heavily invested in what I do. So, um, and, and also I've got conflicts of interest, you know. So, you know, I'm, particularly when you're a you know a listed in a listed company, if I own shares in some of these organisations which are customers of mine, mm. you know, I'd have to declare it in the conflicts register, and and, and I have phone conversations with people, and I, I just never want anyone to think that I'd ever do anything inappropriate. So, yeah. I just typically focus on my knitting and go from yeah. There. And it's interesting when when you are in a public company, anything you do or say well, can be held against you. I know that too. I have a public company as well, mate. It's been a great pleasure to talk. I think I could talk to you, you know, nearly all day, but I think 
I've covered off most of the stuff I, I will. You know, I didn't know what I want to talk to you about until I started talking to you. But you're, you're, you're clearly um, you're a great Australian entrepreneur, and you've done some fantastic work. And uh, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Cheers, mate. Have a good day. Hey, Peter. Hi, Claire. <laughs> Did you know that women retire with 47% less superannuation than men? Yeah, I did, Claire, because for something like 30 years, I've been trying to get women to be real and men to be really educated about their super. And I think it's been terrible to think that women's superannuation is so low. Exactly. But did you also know that one in two women see investment industry communications as being complicated? A large number feel intimidated and about one in five find them tailored to men. Yeah. I haven't seen that, that data, mm. um, but I'm not surprised. I think a lot of men get intimidated by, by money and super and all that sort of stuff. But one thing I have learned over the years is that when women get really interested, they're better at managing money than men. Exactly. <laughs> oh, I see how quickly he came in on that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's what we're aiming to do with Tilly Money. Yep. So Tilly Money is a place to come and learn about money, how to understand it, harness it, and importantly, how to grow it. So we're trying to help women achieve their financial independence by removing any disparity in the accessibility of financial knowledge. Mm -hmm. So Peter, visit tillymoney.com.au where you can read our articles, sign up to the newsletter, or listen to the podcast. Isn't it amazing that for someone like me, who my whole life I've been inspired by my wife Maureen Jordan that mm. um, she's come up with an idea like Tilly. Who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs>Joining me now is the author of a new book called Babies of the Rose, Justin Smith. And I've known Justin for years as a radio personality with the Macquarie Radio Network and others. Um, and uh, I was intrigued about the book. I was intrigued about how come he's writing stuff like this. But I think uh, over time we'll work out why. Justin, uh, thanks for joining us on the program. This is a little weird, Pete, because I was trying to remember how many times I might have interviewed you over the years. Yeah. And, and then for us to have a chat like this is a little – so if I start asking you questions, don't, yeah. don't get too upset. No, uh, no but I'll probably tell you to shut up and answer my questions. That's, what, that's the way we do it around here. But listen, mate, I've – let us position you first of all because the book itself – seems to me to be very heartfelt. Um, and I think you make the point, this is not a true story or a true number of stories, but you have interviewed lots of veterans over the years and, and other people, and it's a, a byproduct of those experiences. Yeah. But who is Justin Smith? Like, okay, you ended up on radio, but here's the question. How did you end up on radio? Oh, gee, well, it's great. I was um – I was 17 years old and I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I liked telling stories and I, I kind of like writing, but I didn't really, I was a little bit lost to be honest and as a lot of teenagers can be. And I did work experience. I lived, I was born in Echuca, uh in, in country Victoria, just on the Murray there. And I, um, I did work experience at a radio station. And uh, when I finished, they said to me, look, come back when you finish school and we'll give you a job. And, uh, and I said, a job like doing what, what, what would you like me to do? And they said, oh, you know, talking on the radio and, and, you know, mm -hmm. playing records and doing things. And I, it just sort of, it, it was just the strangest thing because I wanted to do it, 
but I didn't really think that a person actually got to do those jobs, yeah. you know. I was a big fan of uh, people like, um, I don't know, Graham Kennedy and Bert Newton and those kinds of people and other people on radio, and I was yeah. a big fan of them. But I did I never knew that they were kids as well or and that they had to try to get a job somewhere. Mm. So I just kind of did and I, I fell into it a little bit and then realised how much I liked it. So I was, I was basically a radio guy. Uh, and then, uh, you know, doing time and temperature and, and those things. And then I sort of moved into, you know, being more of a journalist and working as a producer and a journalist and, and more on the current affairs side. There, there seemed to be the longer I went, uh, the more I, I wanted to tell proper stories, tell them well, tell some serious stories. Mm. Um, and and that's that's how it came came along. Yeah. What was the the best period of your working life so far and why? Look, I think, and this is where the book has sort of come from, the best couple of weeks that I ever had in my life was when I went to Afghanistan uh, with the troops and uh, I was there for an Anzac Day, covering the Anzac Day and doing it on, on national radio. I was presenting a program and also just interviewing them. And it was like um, Story Christmas coming downstairs to under the tree, just story after story after story and people. And I really got to know people. I think that was just the greatest period uh, of my life. I don't actually ever professionally ever remember being that happy mm. before or since. So it was just one of those moments that kind of click in. Were you ever scared? Yeah, I was. I um, We went out. Uh, I would never exaggerate because it's completely disrespectful for the people that were there. So I was never fired upon. Uh, I was never involved in any battle or anything like that. But um, we went on patrol uh, outside of the wire, they call it. We went outside of Tarrant Cout, the the base. And when we got into the back of the vehicles and we were just weaving out, uh, I just, they're just the panic. Uh, and, and I'm a little claustrophobic anyway, but I'm in the back with these huge guys and we've all got gear, I've got flak jackets and it's hot and everything. And we just, I just felt this enormous fear. And I'm going to only imagine, and you know, this is just a minute bit of what it must be like. And when I say minute, I mean miniature of what it must be like to be fired upon or to come across hostility, you know, uh, while you're involved in that situation. But I just felt this, you know, is incredible. I managed to confess that to the lieutenant that I went out with, uh, Pat Rooney, his name is, and he's now a major. Uh, and uh, I interviewed him for a podcast uh, a few weeks, a few months ago. And we talked about that. And I said, look, I was absolutely packing death in that thing, you know, and he sort of laughed because he, he possibly felt the same way the first time that he went out, mm. but uh, it was pretty. It was a non, reasonably non-eventful. Well, it was a non-eventful um, patrol that we went out on. But gee, those guys, you know, just gave me an incredible. You know, you're going into a place where there will be people watching you that want you dead, uh, and I guess that sort of kicked into me. Yeah, the the book you that they'd been in that situation. Yeah, the book you've written, mate, um, is kind of timely in the sense that you know, James Kite is a Vietnam vet, and um, yeah, as a consequence of that experience, you know, his life has been affected. And uh, Grace uh, Moore, well, she hasn't had a a, a war experience, but she yeah. certainly has 
depression, which a lot of people coming out of war has. And then you have a character called the soldier who actually was in Afghanistan. Um, And before I talk to you about the book and the interconnections and what you're hoping to achieve, you clearly would have had some thoughts on what's going on now with um, a number of our uh, finest uh, Australian military or Australian Defence Force personnel um, being questioned about you know, their, their behaviour abroad. And I must admit, uh, the closest I've come to a war is seeing movies like The Sniper. Um, and movies like that teach normal people just how scare, scary, how pressured, yeah. how people might make the wrong decisions and all those sorts of things. And it's very easy to sit back from the comfort of uh, a, a Western civilization or even Beijing and make some kind of value judgment on the the mistakes or the behaviours of, of, of people under that pressure. What have your thoughts been? I, I, your thoughts would be f- far more sophisticated on the subject than mine. Oh, look, I don't know. I, when I, I, don't, I don't want to ever pass myself off as, as some form of an expert. I, I just like to observe and, 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 and write about and talk about what I observe. And, and what I have seen of the people that have returned uh, from from these wars is just how, and this is what the book is, is just how unbelievably damaged mm. uh, some of these people have become because of it. And when I see this war crime stuff that has been brought up now, my, my biggest fear uh, for the people that have been damaged and they are being talked about in the same way as potential war criminals mm. and allegations being made. I mean, these allegations haven't stood up yet, but by all accounts this report that has been handed in is bloody awful reading it is terrible stuff and and not to be sort of you know passed off you know we've got to we've got to make sure that if anyone has done the wrong thing that they that they've got to answer to it i'm i'm not excusing anything like that but while we do it i mean this business with the australian defense force taking away the the unit citation for 3000 people when we're talking about, I think it's 19 soldiers that they are alleging have committed war crimes. Now, that that also leaves a hell of a lot of soldiers that put their life on the line, mm. received a citation. And these things are big. You know, these citations and medals are enormous things to these people because they, they don't get the pay for it. They don't get the glory for it, many of them. Um, and what they get is recognition from their government. I mean, I think of what is Napoleon who said, you know, I can't, I can't get somebody to die for a sack of money, but I can get them to die for a little ribbon. Mm. And, and, you know, I don't want to be twee with that, but I, I think that there's something in that, that, that these citations are enormous. You take that away, it, it shows to me that there's been a, a real lack of understanding in, in the way that governments and bureaucrats have dealt with people with post-traumatic stress disorder. You, you, we must deal with it in a, in a, in a different way because we lump, lump everybody together. I mean, I've talked to families, you know, uh, who have lost uh, sons uh, to suicide who have come back from places like Afghanistan. And one of the reasons is they contact the government for help, the government that they went to fight for, they contact them for help and the government says, oh, we'll fill in this form or, you know, uh, look, fill in the form and then we'll call you in six weeks. And now somebody with PTSD can't hear that. That's not a conversation that they are capable of having. Yeah. Um, they have become, for all intents and purposes, they have become abnormal. 
in their brain because of what has happened to them. And you can't deal with them in that normal kind of bureaucratic fill in the form and, you know, kind of way. And, and so, so back to the, the question with this, with this war crimes, I, my biggest fear is for the guys that are going to be, and the women that are going to be caught up uh, in this, that are suffering right now. And this will add to their suffering enormously. And, and do you fear that, you know, the, the industry that both you and I love and have worked in for a long time, in, yeah. a, in a sense, are going to be accessories after the fact in in making this a lot worse for the people you care about. That, you know, and you know that I've often rail against my colleagues in the economics fraternity who always go for the negative option when the positive, the, the fact that the stock market goes up 85% of the time is tends to be ignored every time it crashes, you know. <laughs> so that that worries me that to keep a, a really hot issue, the fact that I'm even talking to you about it, it is a hot issue. Oh, yeah. But but my fear is that, you're, that the innocent will be judged they're guilty until they're proven proven innocent does that worry you as well absolutely and i think that that's what happened with these citations i mean that i just don't think they got how damaging that was when you remove that citation, you you will you've lumped them all together and it was one of the first things that they did mm. so you know the prime minister talked about it and said look this is terrible this uh, the um angus campbell said look this is terrible and they were right it looks like there is some terrible stuff in there but but when they pulled that citation, that that lumped them all in together, and then the media was then able to lump them all in together. And and I, th- I think you're right. We're, so we've got to make sure that we're talking about this in the right way. That if people are proven to be criminals and they have done the wrong thing, mm. that we talk about them. Mm. We don't talk about. And and I also think we've got to start working our way up the chain of leadership here yeah. because if there was a problem with these people, then it certainly kicks into the officers as well. Uh, and and if all we're going to do is uh, charge and lock up corporals, um, I think we're in serious danger of missing the, mm-hmm. missing the bigger problem. So true. Now, why did you call this Babies of the Rose? Uh, Pete, well, that's, that's, that's buried. Uh, I'm not sure which page it is. It's buried. It's buried about uh, page 150. I think it's, <laughs> it's in there, which is the, the reason why I called it babies of the rose. And, and I think there's a nice little mystery in there for somebody. Oh, nice little egg in there for somebody when they come across okay. it. But, um, and, um, yeah. Okay. That's, that's fine. Keep, keep that as a, as an important message. Yeah. I'm very busy, mate. I'm looking forward to reading this over Christmas. But I've I've done my best to do a review of it, and it, yeah, and it got me yeah. in. You know, I've got so many other important books to read. You know, like Ray Dalio yeah. and stuff like that. But I'll slip you in. I, I slip. <laughs> in. And and the thing is that, that I find very interesting is that you have actually uh, mixed, you know, three different sorts of people with three sorts of different problems. And, yeah. And it seems to me. It's a compassionate description of them, but they're all very dysfunctional, as most people are, but they have a special yes. reason for their dysfunctionality. Yeah. And uh, it seems to me that you know, the, the cover on the back of the book is, is saying, well, maybe there is hope out there for these people. And you know, being the optimist I am, I, I hope it ends up with a happy ending. But I can live with a negative ending because I lived through the 70s when movies in those days used to end with negative endings. But it did, but, did go through a period like that, didn't it? Nothing oh, yeah, was happy. Yeah. No, for God's sake, don't have a happy end. <laughs> All right, so I guess my bottom line to you, question to you is 
what do you think people will take away from it? So I, I don't like wasting my time on anything because there's so many important things that people Absolutely. like you have to. So what do you think will be the great take-home message from this book? Look, I, I wanted to write. I wanted to write about damaged people, but I didn't want to do it in a lecturing sort of fashion, um, or as some, you know, expert in this area. Uh, as I said, I just I have uh, witnessed a lot of damaged people. I've I've watched them react to things, and I've watched the way that their world changes. And I have always wanted to write fiction, and I just thought for me uh, as a person who's not an expert but but hopefully a good observer that the best way that I can write about these kinds of people is to write it as a fiction and that's why I've done it and I, and and that's why I did it that way and I I hope that the t- the takeaway from it is that there are a hell of a lot of damaged people and mm. and in our own way we've each got a little bit of it I think you know we've we're each carrying around something mm. Justin the, the thing that gets me and yeah, I'm not a psychiatrist either, but you know, with the nature of our activities, we are thinking about what people do, whether it be the prime minister or a trade union leader, or a, you know, a football coach or a football player on a Thursday night with too much booze aboard. And we we're often commenting on it. We're asked to to comment on it and and the implications of it. Do, do you sometimes get staggered at the inability? of people to A, recognise they've got a problem, but mm. then B, ask for help. It's like, yeah. it's like the, the overweight person who doesn't go to Jenny Craig, you know, the, 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 the person who um, smokes too much and can hardly breathe and doesn't go to, to a doctor and say, I can't stop smoking, but is there any way you can save my life? Have, have, you, have you thought about that? Because in analysing these people, I would have thought that that would have been a part of your... Uh, the way you constructed the, 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 the characters in this book, unless the, or else it wouldn't be believable. Look, I, I guess for me it comes down to, um, it comes down to uh, observation, but also within myself. You know, I've, I've had depression before. I used to drink too much. I don't drink anymore. I had, mm-hmm. to, I had to give it away. Some people can drink. I'm not one of those people. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not able to – I'm a red light, green light kind of person. I was struggling with the concept of moderation, Pete, mm. I think is probably the best way to, to put it. There's so, nothing wrong with that. Plenty no. of you are in, out there. <laughs> oh, absolutely. A, a friend of mine uh, said uh, – what did he say? Um, he said, an alcoholic is a person who drinks just as much as you do but you don't like. Mm. And, uh, mm. and I think that there's something to yeah. that. But, you yeah, know, so – but – you know, so I have, have, have walked down uh, into those corridors. But you're right. I think people have become a little bit of an expert in a lot of different areas, haven't they, mm. these days? I think is what you're touching on yeah. is that uh, people have, you know, I think, I think social media has done that a little bit. I mean, I've, I've been in Talkback Radio for years and I love Talkback Radio. And I guess social media is sort of an extension mm. uh, of that, you know. So, so Talkback Radio is, hey, give me a call. Tell me what you think. People, people call up and they, you know, yep. they, they, they spread out to the audience, you know, their thoughts and they have a bit of back and forth. Social media is just, you know, I can send 17 of these out in a day, you know, and, and just keep sending them out to people and, and telling them what I think. And I think we've just become, uh, we've become commentators. I would hope that I've become a little bit more, I want, I want to, I don't know if I mm. always achieve this, but I'd like to be more of an observer than a commentator mm. is, the, is the kind of person that I would would really like to be. 
However, if you see me on sunrise or something and I'm blabbing on and speaking as though I have some great insight into something, you know, you might realise that I'm, I am just a commentator. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but at least... Just as big a smart-ass as everybody yeah. else. <laughs> but the interesting thing about the old days of the media, you had to be selected to be a commentator. In the age of the, the social media platform, anyone can be a commentator, and that's really interesting. It's a democratisation of commentary. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And look, I, I'm always... I try to be careful with things like... Uh, certainly with things like the economy... Uh, you know, uh, I, you know, there are, you know, there are polar bear cubs uh, in the Arctic uh, wandering around that have a better understanding uh, <laughs> of uh, economic theory than I do. And I don't, I would never, ever pretend to have a full understanding of it. And, and, and those kind of things, I, I try to make sure that I don't. Mate, I know, am I'll looking- report on them, but I'll, I won't delve into them as an no, expert. No. no, the function that, you perform was to ask the questions all your listeners wanted you to ask, and that's the, yes, that's the and that's what you, so. you did very well, mate. I'm looking forward to reading this book. Uh, it's called Babies of the Rose by Justin Smith. Thanks for coming to the program, Justin. Pete, wonderful, so lovely to chat, mate. Thank you. And that's the end of the show for this week. Uh, look, I, I want to throw one quick th- one in. My producer doesn't know I'm going to say this, but so I've been noticing that a whole lot of people don't realise that. Peter Switzer actually has a financial planning business. I've been doing it for ages, and I, I guess when we started it, it, it was very low key. It was basically just to look after the people who came to me and actually asked me to, to do their financial planning. So we eventually created the business, and we in those days we re- rebated commissions and we charged flat dollar fees, which was very unusual for the industry at the time. So. I, People in my organisation say, why don't you keep start telling people that we actually have a financial planning business? So if you have any financial issues and you'd like some help, think about contacting us. You can just go to switzer.com.au. You can find out all our contact details there. And uh, we'd be very happy to help you. I'm Peter Switzer. Talk to you next week. Quentin time! Quentin time! <laughs>